0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series.
1: Well, I'm really excited to have Henry here. Welcome, Henry, to Common Ground. Thank you. When Mark said I got to introduce you, I was so excited that I've been excited for the last. (laughs) And now, of course, I'm feeling some anxiety. Henry is a pioneer and a visionary in alternative and complementary medicine. He's a physician and doctor psychiatrist that took his Western training and integrated the Eastern disciplines he integrated them and worked them together in a really extraordinary way, which his book, The Chemistry of Joy, goes into. I met Henry. Actually, I went on purpose to meet him. He was, I knew he was teaching an Inner Life for Healers meeting at a retreat at the Center for Spirituality and Healing. And he founded that program and created it. He also. Uh, founded the Year of Living Mindfully and taught that in what year?
2: I don't remember. (laughs) I wasn't mindful enough that year, I guess.
3: (laughs) So
1: Henry has, at the University of Minnesota and at the Center for Spirituality, actually forged the path of mindfulness. And because of him, a course that I teach in NARA and various other people, because of Henry, I believe that course was able to be settled into the university. So I am so grateful to Henry because of all the mindfulness. Uh, what he also did, he, Henry was instrumental in getting the grant, at the National Institute of Health, the grant for. The Impact of Mindfulness-Based stress Reduction on Organ Transplant Recipients, which is a five-year study that just finished, and we don't have the results yet. And that also was a wonderful experience. I got to help Henry for a year and learn from Henry. And he's the most attentive listener. He can listen so well. And he's so patient and so caring. And he lets the people discover for themselves what's already there. So I want to tell one other story too. When I while I was teaching while I wasn't teaching with him, I was actually just helping and learning. He was my mentor and he's my teacher. And I went to my own doctor, who's an internist, and I said I, would, I have the honor of working with Henry. And she went to medical school with Henry, and she said even at that time, he was the most caring and compassionate medical student in the class. So.
2: <laughs> did, did she mention I was the most confused? <laughs> <laughs>
4: so
1: Henry's heart was very big at that time. and. It, Henry is a healer with an open heart. And curiosity is, I'm so grateful to you, Henry. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Terry. I don't usually get introductions that are quite that nice, so really, <laughs> really wonderful. Thank you. Um, well, thank you all so much for, for coming. Here it's really wonderful to see so many people, many of whom I know and have had various uh, <laughs> degrees of relationship with over the years, and I feel very good being here with with all of you. I do want to just comment about how impressed I am about just just as to how much the community here has has accomplished, how much it's it's done, both in having a beautiful space, but more important what goes on in the space. And you know, for, for many years, I've just heard so many wonderful things about the experience people have when they come here. Uh, it really seems to be a, a community in the best sense of the word. And people feel supported. And there's a great deal of kindness and, and uh, compassion that I think people experience here. So it's really a delight for me to be part of it in this way. So let me just begin by by telling a, a story. This is uh, something that happened, I want to say, about uh, probably about five years ago, four or five years ago. Um, and this is before I started writing this book, but I had um, worked on a lot of the ideas that were in it over the years. I just had never had. The wherewithal or the opportunity to, to kind of pull that together. And one day, um, about this time of year, I got a phone call out of the blue on my cell phone. It was a woman who claimed to be a literary agent in New York City. My, my next thought was, she wants my credit card, <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll be in business. But. You know, it, I wasn't sure what to think of that, but she said that she had gotten my name from someone who, who I actually know here in the, the cities uh, and have worked with. Um, and my friend was at a conference that had nothing to do with mental health, but at that conference, one of the other writers who worked with this agent was asking around, is there psychiatrists, you know, psychiatrists who could write a book about natural therapies for depression? And so she she got my name and just wanted to know if I was something I might be interested in and I had had been researching and studying um, ways of incorporating natural treatments into psychiatry for a few years. I took some time off with a Bush fellowship to do that and so it was obviously an area of interest to me, but when I heard her proposal it wasn't that interesting it was um, Kind of a narrow approach is what she was looking for, Um, and you know, you all know what what the self-help shelves look like. You know, it's uh, it's you know a couple of easy steps to this or or that. And she really wanted me to focus on um, alternative medicinal treatments, so alternatives to medication, which I think are really helpful and important, but not enough energy for me to write a book on it. it uh, there are other books out there that do that, and it just felt a little bit like um, still tweaking the brain chemistry, which is important, obviously, but it just isn't enough to really sink my teeth in. So I counter-proposed, and we kind of went back and forth, and um, she didn't particularly like She thought what I was talking about was too broad, uh, but we went ahead and wrote a. Book proposal, and sure enough, the publishers thought it was too broad, too. So (laughs) nobody was biting on it. Um, But um, with just a little bit of revising, we were able to get a publisher interested. And the book is compromised, but more or less what I had hoped it would be. It takes a a, a much broader look at depression than it might have. And um, to me, that makes a lot of sense, because I think I think of depression as being a very holistic illness, about as as clear an example as I can think of, because it affects every aspect of who we are as human beings. There isn't anything that is really left untouched by the condition we call depression. So just after this, literally probably two or three weeks after this phone call, I. was preparing to do a workshop. This was a a full-day workshop for therapists, so for mental health professionals. Um, And the workshop was supposed to be um, talking about integrating these natural and alternative therapies in the treatment of depression. Um, So a whole day's worth of talking and uh, putting things together. And so I was working really hard. It was the first time I had done this particular workshop, at least in as as, um, as big a wave, so I was working very hard at preparing for it, and um, I was getting really tired of depression. It's it's a it's a tough thing to to really dig into and um, sort of you know wrap your mind around and um, in some ways wrap one's life around. It's 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 hard. So I was really looking for some way to turn this on its head somehow. I didn't quite know what that meant. But, but the topic of depression, the way we think of it in Western terms, um, it, it tends to be seen as a problem that needs to be fixed. And so without quite knowing where I was going with this, the night before I did this workshop, I was driving my son, who at that time I think was 13. He's now almost 18, so it must have been five years ago. And he, uh, I was driving, and, and I saw this car ahead of me, and I just noticed the bumper sticker. I never really look at those, but I happened to see it. It just kind of jumped out at me, and it said, Surely joy is the condition of life. It's a quotation by Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. Surely joy is the condition of life. So that just struck me. So I asked my 13-year-old son to read that out loud, because I wasn't sure I was seeing it quite correctly. He has younger eyes than I do. So he read it, and sure enough, that's what it said. So I was still um, quite not quite sure what Thoreau meant by that, because this this phrase, if you think about it, surely joy is a condition of life, it doesn't quite square with, our experience of life, at least not mine at that time, and not most of ours, I would guess. So I was wondering, what what was he smoking at Walden Pond?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and so like, like any uh, sensible father, I asked my 13-year-old, what do you think he meant by that? And he gave a pretty good answer. He actually thought about it for 30 seconds, so I was Ahead of the game already, and he uh, he said, "Well, you know, maybe, maybe what he means is that we really should try harder to be happy." I liked that answer, but I wasn't quite sure that was the the full depth of what Thoreau was was getting at. And so, um, still not knowing, of course, what he meant, I I wanted to take it at face value. Maybe, you know, a poet like Thoreau who tends to see things a little deeper, perhaps, a little below the surface. Maybe he's seeing something that's real, something that's there that um, is obscured to most of us, at least most of the time. That was helpful to me at turning this thing on its head a little bit, this thing called depression. I don't think of them as being opposite from each other. I don't think that joy is the opposite of depression. I think though that what we what we do with this condition we call depression is is so limited by our thoughts and our view of it and we don't really need to do that. So overcoming depression in other words, not being sick from it is really, really good. It's, if, if one has suffered from depression, that's that's you know such a blessed relief to not experience that. And yet, the the lack of depression, the lack of illness, is a far cry from from joy. It's just the lack of illness. It's normal. It's what we really are designed how we're designed to be and to function and to to go through this life but um, but there's something more there's something much more that's there that's possible which um, we don't really even address or understand in uh, the Western medical approach to depression so I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the truth about depression. Uh, When we practice mindfulness, we're encouraged to to tell the truth, to see things as they are. And one way of doing that is to see what what does science tell us? What are the statistics about depression? And I just want to share a few, and then I want to have a conversation. I want to invite you into some kind of a dialogue about this, at least for a few minutes. So depression, you may know, is a, a condition that's growing in, in frequency. It is much more common today than it was in the past, and I want to uh, tell you one way that we that we know that a pretty good way to understand the changes that have occurred. Every ten years, the <coughs> U.S. government goes out and does a census, and starting in the year 1900, they Some some epidemiologists put together a study. Just a a small, randomly selected number of people that were um, interviewed for the census were also asked questions about mental health or mental illness. Now, back then, we didn't have the same terminology we do now. There wasn't a DSM-3 or 4, which some of you have heard of. So it wouldn't have been labeled in quite the same way. But the questions are very much the same. So what we know from this, they've done this similar study then every 10 years for roughly the last 100 years. And what we know from that is that every time it's been measured, the rates of depression and anxiety have increased by about 10% every decade. Now, those of you who who know about the power of compounding interest, you know that um, That means it's increased much, much more than 100% over that 100 years' time. Another way of looking at it is that someone who's been born after 1945 has about a 10 times higher rate, higher risk, of getting depressed than someone who was born around the turn of the last century. Now, that's a huge, huge change in a very short period of time. We we tend to think about the importance of genetics for depression, and it is it is important. It's an important piece to it, but genetics don't change that quickly. It takes you know tens of thousands of years for the gene pool to really change. So that is not an explanation for what's happened in this time that we have measured. So I want to ask uh, you, what do you think might explain that? We don't know for sure. It's all speculation, so I'm inviting you to speculate right now. But what has changed in this? It's a really, really short period of time if you think about evolution. seems like a long period of time historically, but 100 years is an incredibly short period of time. What has changed in that time that might play into this epidemic?
3: culture and our
2: diet. Culture and diet. So say a little bit more about culture. Well, no, I
3: think we just, you know, everything has become a lot easier. Uh, people get this, there's just hundreds of thousands of distractions. Um, that's about all I can say about that. I think that our food, that does not have the nutrients it used to have in it. I don't think that we eat as healthy as, as we did. Even 60, 70
2: years Yeah, so so comments are about um, about food and the nu- food not having the same nutrition or nutritional value that it once did, and also then um, the number of distractions that there are um, just constantly just in the environment that perhaps weren't there in the same way 100 years ago. Um, yes, another comment in the back there.
5: Atomization of human minds, particularly in, in North America, Europe. Um, I, I, I would be interested to hear your statistics. if They apply to what parts of the world? Okay. And you can break them down in countries, continents, regions, etc.
2: So it's a it's a great question. Um, first, a comment about having moved from. Uh, more of an agricultural society to more of an industrialized society, which really has (laughs) largely taken place in the last 100 years. There there was plenty of industry, but 100 years ago, most people in this country were making a living one way or another through agriculture. And of course, now it's it's a very, very small percentage. but but then also the question what what's it, what about other countries you know that may be true for the United States European countries but what about other parts of the world what does the data say well we don't have this, the same kind of census data that goes back a hundred years but what we do know is that the um, <clears throat> the rates of depression are rising incredibly fast in other parts of the world parts of the world that. Um, probably did not have very high incidence of depression just a short time ago. Um, just in the last week, uh, there were um, there was some research that came out about the, the high rate of suicide in China and Japan. Some of you saw that or heard that probably. I mean, it's going up just incredibly fast, and of course, no one really knows why that is, but the... The rest of the world is changing very, very quickly to become like us. It's not going the other way around. The World Health Organization does estimate that by the year 2020, so not that far in the future, um, depression will be the number one cause of disability worldwide. It is already the number one cause of disability in the United States. And by the way, we do know that the United States has the highest rates of depression, but the gap is really quickly... Um, a few months ago, I heard a, uh, a man interviewed on NPR, and they were talking about, about how the world is becoming flat and you know, changes in business practices and um, sales and marketing and so forth. But his comment was, I thought, very appropriate for this discussion. Um, this man was from, uh, I, I want to say, Malaysia, but I, I couldn't swear to that. But it was a country we think of as a developing country. And he said,
1: you know, the United
2: States invented stress. <laughs> and then, he says, now you're exporting it to the rest of the world, <laughs> which you know, there's some truth in that. So the changes in um, society. And one, one other piece of information about how those changes maybe are impacting depression. Um, some years ago, there were two cultures that were studied, small, discrete societies that were studied to see what their rates of depression were. One was the Amish community in this country, and the other was a uh, tribe in New Zealand, but I, I don't remember the name of the, the tribe, but a small group.
1: And what they found,
2: this is probably 20 years old now, was that they had virtually no depression, at least the way that we we would think of it. They did not exist. They did the same kind of questions, same kind of studies, and the speculation there was that one they they got a lot more exercise than we do they're busy you know physically active all day long but then secondly that they were very tight knit communities they were communities that supported one another when someone suffered then the rest of the community did something to try to relieve that suffering if someone went hungry Others would (laughs) give of of their food so that no one was was hungry. So, small community where they could do that. And I don't know if those studies would still hold true today. The Amish community has certainly changed. And, you know, other cultures are changing very quickly. Yes? I wonder if
0: the the attitude of people in general has been a part of this equation. I wonder if the older people in the room, I see that people's attitudes have changed tremendously people are not nearly what people of my generation. So for instance, there was no air conditioning when I was a kid. And we have <laughs> now it drives me crazy like I, to, I can't get an air conditioning plant. In those days I thought nothing more. I just accepted it. And so I think for the hundred years people's attitudes have changed tremendously. They're more sensitive to negativity than they used to be. People don't accept
2: hardship like they used to accept. It. And I think that leads to depression. Yeah, you know that's a, a it's a really good point. That I, I don't know if everybody could hear that, so I'll repeat some of it. The, the comment was about how how just how much attitudes have changed, even since since he was young, and I would say even since I was young, um, where we. Um, we have different expectations and and aren't as able to accept hardship or you know variation even in things like uh, temperature we need air conditioning all of the time. There's some really interesting research I think on um, just the the power of of evolution and how how that shapes our brains and shapes our our um, even things that we think aren't related to biology but you know, like like how we get along in society and how we care for our young and and so forth. But one of the things that comes out of this research is that we our bodies need to be stressed. We need to have periods of stress like (coughs) heat, for example. That would be a stress to the body, or or periods of time where we don't have as much food, or periods of drought, or periods, you know, just um, physical changes, even, because that evolutionary um, uh, pressure that has made us as we are—that always existed until recently. And now, you know, we can live in, you know, 70 degrees, you know, give or take, uh, virtually year-round. Um, We—it is possible for us to go through uh, most of our days getting almost no physical exercise or exertion. It's. Not advisable, but it is possible. <laughs> um, you know, and, and on and on, um, which I think you're you're getting at. And and our our bodies don't do well under that. We don't uh, have the capacity to adapt and change. And so, you know, we, we talk think about stress and and it, it, stress being a bad thing, but the kind of stress that people had e- experienced over, you know, the millennia was very, very different from what we experience now, and probably made them stronger, made them um, you know, respond in ways that you know, that they grew. Um, w- without that, uh, we're, we're, we have a tendency to soften and, and be more, more disposed then to chronic illness. Yes, yeah. I, I was just thinking uh, isolation in the sense that uh, people
4: have more of a choice now they work a job and live in, live in a society. And they get done with their work, they come home, and you know some people have family. But, but overall, there's not it's kind of like you know, if you have like a lot of refugees or people who are oppressed. It sounds like that seems you know it seems like maybe more depressed than, than a society like ours. But they're somehow together on that. There's, there's more of this kind of forced community that happens from that from that difficulty or hardship, whereas we kind of, as a society, don't have hardship, and so it seems like the natural choice for people who are kind of, can make a choice, ends up kind of being a withdrawal, and, and kind of, there's nothing fostering relationship and community, and so, at least in my experience, you know, in my seems like the, the lack of that is a big part of
0: there's yeah. Isolation. Yeah.
2: So the, the uh, isolation or the perception of isolation, right. you know, they're virtually the same in terms of how they affect our our bodies and our brains. I had a really good example of that um, presented to me for for Christmas last year. I asked for a book from my my family um, about Lincoln's depression. It's called Lincoln's Melancholy. Since depression is my life, that's what I asked for for Christmas. <laughs> And uh, if, if, if you are interested in that kind of thing, Abraham Lincoln um, and his story of really, really severe depression, it is a fascinating book. But there's this image um, that the author paints of Lincoln through letters. And I don't know if any of you have read any of his letters or letters written about it, but he suffered profound melancholy depression, the kind that really knocks you off your feet. He was severely suicidal at least two or three times when he was younger. And during one of these um, these periods, there's, there's letters written about him. And here's the image that it painted that I just thought was fascinating. So um, you know, Lincoln, at that time in his life, he traveled around a lot in Illinois. He was an attorney. And he traveled from community to community to try to make a living. And um, it was normal in those days to go to the local pub, or tavern, or whatever it was called, where they you know, had spirits, but also food, and so people hung out. So he was there, and um, the writer of this letter described him that he looked like the most forlorn, melancholic person he had ever witnessed. His unhappiness was just thick. Was palpable. He was sitting, um, you know, by himself, kind of in a corner. Had his long legs stretched out, you know, kind of hunched over, um, arms folded, you know. And the description was just really vivid. And then the same um, letter goes on to describe what happened. That in about, you know, half an hour, there was a group of ten or twelve people in a circle. With Lincoln kind of, you know, front and center, and he was regaling them with stories. He was telling jokes. He was telling stories. He had, he was just, he had come to life. He was enlivened by this, and apparently he was a great storyteller and joke teller. So this description, you know, was just so vivid and so, so fast a change. Now he went on, of course, to suffer. There weren't a lot of things he could do. But one of the ways that he coped, and the, the book speculates that he um, developed some of his skills that served him well as president, was that he, he developed this great ability to connect with people and to, um, you know, to be really social in a really healthy way. Yes, another comment in the back there. Yeah, so the, the comment about about how we've, we've really come to view things in, through a medical lens, if you will. And so we see things that might be normal as being an illness that needs to be treated. And of course, that, at least with depression, that dynamic changed greatly when Prozac came out. Because before that, most of the medications were were so harsh that people wouldn't take them for sort of mild to moderate feelings of depression, but with Prozac and all the drugs that followed the side effects at least were thought to be so um, benign that you know people who were would not have treated their depression before chose to do so that's a that is a uh, that is a tough thing to know how to understand you know, working in the field as I do I recognize that there's it's, there's lots and lots of real suffering that uh, is relieved to at least to some extent by what we consider medical treatments. Um, there are certainly people, um, I just have no question about this. There, there are certain percentage of people who really do have an illness. It's just it just knocks them off their feet. It's, it's a really serious condition It clearly needs to be treated with medication. I do have concerns, though, I think you're alluding to this, that um, that we're treating really kind of mild or, or maybe temporary symptoms of depression um, with medications very, very readily That is that may be putting some people at, at some risk um, in the long term. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, there was a study done not long ago that... If a patient told their family doctor that they were feeling sad or depressed, whatever terms they used, the doctor then has been trained to ask a few questions. And with the, the, what the study showed was that within six minutes, on average, of that first comment about feeling sad or feeling down, they had a prescription in hand. That's the extent of, you know, and, I, and this is not a slam on family doctors. This is uh, kind of more a comment about the, the state that we're in and, and that it does have to do with medicalization. So it, there's not a lot of thought always that goes into whether or not medications are used and how they're used and how long they're used. And so my concern is that people who, who maybe really are suffering, um, but It may be stress-related or temporary and may not last all that long. If they get on a medication, and it usually does give them relief, many people in this room I'm sure have have experienced that. Um, That's all fine and and well in my view. The, The concern, though, comes in people who stay on the medication for too long. And then it becomes very hard to get off of for some people. So, one way to think about this is that our brains, our, whole, our bodies, our, our, our every part of our body is constantly renewing itself. The cells that we have in this body right now will be completely turned over in about a year's time. If you were to measure that, if you were to put a little marker on every bit of tissue in your body, it would all be completely different, new, even though you'd look, you know, roughly the same, um, it's, th- our bodies are constantly regenerating themselves. Now, the brain um, is, is regenerated probably a little faster than most parts of the body. So if you're on a medication for, let's say, 9 to 12 months, and then, so all the cells that are in your brain have been basically created under that circumstance. Now, that has become normal for you having that medication and the effects that it has on the brain have become normal. Now, the people with really severe depression, I have no problem with that. I think they're doing, that's absolutely what they should be doing. But we're doing, we we are in the midst of a vast experiment in this country that I don't think is turning out all that well. Because it, it is hard to get off a medication if you've been on it for, you know, a year or more. And there are many, many people, uh, young, really young people, who are are, are going to have to confront that at some point. Yes. Yeah.
5: Um, what makes it hard to get off the medicine? Because you usually hear that, you know, there's no side effects. You can be on SSRIs for, you know, really a fairly long period of time. So what do you experiencing? as difficulties?
2: <coughs> Um, for some people, there there really are very few side effects, and they can stay on these medications long term, probably without any real risk to them. Um, the people I see, and you know, I think that this is really common. Um, over time, do start to experience some side effects from medications. Um, The common ones are weight gain, sexual side effects, loss of energy, or feeling kind of flat, emotionally kind of flat. Um, But if the dose is right or people do other things, it's not usually so bad. The issue really is that um, once the brain has really accommodated to having that much serotonin or whatever the brain chemical is, and then you take it away, it's going to take another six months to a year before you've really adjusted to that. And so, a lot of people will have, whether they recognize it or not, will have withdrawal symptoms that make it just make it really challenging. Now, that can still be done, um, but a person often needs a lot of support as they're as they're doing that. That's right here. Uh, uh, six and a half billion people. Right, right, right. So the the population growth, which which at least until fairly recently, I think was an exponential curve, um, not a linear curve. So it was growing very, very rapidly. Uh, Yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on a lot of systems. Yes.
3: Of that is driven by fear. I think that's a very strong particularly um, in our society, and that I can link that, again, So um, something that I'm going to say next, but because of the media. And um, and what I was going to say, additionally, is um, I feel like people are looking, like, so much outside themselves to kind of feel that, um, that hole that with comfort, maybe that emptiness with external things instead of
0: kind of working to deal with that internally. So a
2: couple of, of really good comments. One is that um that people have a tendency to look outside themselves for, to fill the void, the hole, whatever is missing. Um which is Probably not a new phenomenon in the last hundred years, but maybe it's been accelerated some. And then um, the the sense of fear that is at least partly um, generated or kept going by by the media. And my my uh, take on that is that um, you know this is re- this is really a, a precept from mindfulness practice. I, I think that. Um, Whatever we're focused on, it, whatever our mind is focused upon, is what grows for us in our awareness and our consciousness, and it grows then in our lives. And so, you know, it, it's not really the media's fault. You know, we don't have to tune into that, but of course it's very hard not to. Um, but if, if we are constantly focused on what's wrong or the disasters or the, you know, the, the things that there's plenty to be fearful about, in this world, um, then that that ex- that is the experience that grows for us. There was a study. There's there's only one study I'm aware of that could never be done in this country. You'll know, understand why in just a minute. Um, it was done in a a small Scandinavian city. I, th- I think the city was about a half a million or, or a little bit less. And what they did was they they got all the media outlets to agree. To a moratorium on bad local news. They didn't need to, you know, all the, the, the murders, the, you know, robberies, the things that fill the, you know, the papers and the nightly news. They, did, they agreed to, to just not do that for a period of six months, I think. And then they measured the rates of depression during and after that six month moratorium. And sure enough, the rates of depression went down. And then when they started. Broadcasting that same old crap, it went up again, right back to where it had been before. To my knowledge, it's never been replicated, um, but it's it's a powerful um, suggestion that what you're saying is is really true. Yes.
5: I I wonder if one factor is, that at some level, uh, many of us are starting to figure out that our whole approach. Is- how to build a satisfying, happy life that hasn't worked. One of the huge things that's changed in the last hundred years is the escalation of material wealth and consumption. And if the whole stereotype of the American dream builds happiness on increased (laughs) material wealth and consumption. And certainly by a reference of a hundred years ago, we have taken that whole experiment to its logical extreme are fantastically wealthy compared to most humans who have ever lived on the planet. Um, But it doesn't necessarily bring satisfaction in one's life. So if one, at some level, starts to understand that, you've run the experiment, your generation before you ran it, your prodigy (coughs) are running it, you don't see a lot of increased satisfaction in the way you're living, but you don't know
2: what else to do. And that's experience. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the comment about how we continue to chase the the idea that having more and more things, whether they be material things or experiences or kudos or what you know, feeling good about ourselves, the more we chase those external things, um, the harder we work at it, the the less likely we are to actually feel happier, content, and that has changed to some degree. There's more material things in the last, you know, now than there was a hundred years ago. The the research on this, I think, is pretty clear that so long as your basic needs are met, so long as you have, you know, food and shelter and safety, there's very little change in one's level of happiness. We're not talking about joy. We're talking about just happiness, which is a different thing. But there's very little difference in, in one's degree of happiness by having more money or more things that money can buy. We just don't get that, do we? It's hard. It's a hard, hard thing to, to learn. Way in the back. Just a comment about the, the how how does society view depression as a, a shameful thing? and seen as <clears throat> so you know,
1: maybe a shameful
2: thing? Yeah, you know I I do think it's changed. You know, I've I've been practicing psychiatry for roughly twenty years or so and in the time since I started, I think that has changed. The, 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 the degree to which people feel ashamed of, of being depressed, or other people tend to judge them, I think that that has gotten better. Now, it's not perfect. But I think that, one, people are, are recognizing that it's, uh, at least some for some people, it is an illness. Um, it's very hard to find anybody Nowadays, who's not been touched by depression pretty closely, either themselves or family member or loved one? And I, at least my sense is that you know when it has has struck really close to home, um, you tend to drop some of those ideas about it being shameful or different. Now, I I, I'd, I'd be interested if others have a different experience, but I think that it is better than it had been. Still has a ways to go. Yes.
1: My thought about that is if, if that were really true, the suicide rates would be staying the same or going down, and they're
2: going up. So if, if people weren't ashamed if about... it was
3: actually all right to acknowledge that you were that depressed. You
2: know, right. So, you know, suicide rates, um, I, I think, actually have gone down. To a large degree, um, particularly in young people, and, until pretty recently, there's been a big spike upward. That research just came out last week as well. But but I think that there has been over the last ten or fifteen years a just a kind of a slow but, but general trend towards towards fewer suicides, uh, whereas depression and anxiety have continued to increase. Now, why that is, I I don't know, but I, but I think that that's true.
0: Yes. I wonder about the idea of loss of self-control. The ability to handle you know, whatever's going on around you or to have some control over what's going on around you. OK. Yeah, so see what now, you're I, saying. I look back in the centuries and certainly different people who've had no control over their lives. But one of the things that drags me down, not to the state of clinical depression, but is that idea that it seems like Losing more and more control. Now we're in a political system where we have such a uh, split. I'm not sure that you know anything that I think anything that I want. I have any control over that before.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the the the, the comment here is about how how little ability we. Seem to have to influence uh, what's going on around us, to, to control our environment, or to have any impact on things that we, you know, or feel are important to us. And and I, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I do think that it is our perception that we have less ability to influence our lives or the uh, things going on around us. And if. And what you're saying, I think, is that if we did have a little bit more of that, more of a sense of that, it wouldn't feel so heavy or overwhelming. And I think that that is really true. Um, one really simple way of, of getting at that was this um, study that was done in a nursing home population where they, they gave some of the nursing home residents a plant to take care of which was a way of you know, having something in their environment that they could influence. It was up to them whether they cared for it, how well they did, you know, whether it thrived or didn't thrive. And it gave them some locus of control. Those people who have just that change um, have longer survival <coughs> rates, less rates of depression and other illness. Um, you know, Very, very simple things can change our perception that we've got nothing. no, no ability to control that which is around us. Way, way in the back.
3: Well, you know, the,
2: I think we, we we all we all know that um, you know one of the one of the things that is taught in in Buddhism is that nothing stays the same. Everything is changing all, at all all times. Stand you another? Well,
5: I think that Buddha guy has kind of right in that <laughs> there's suffering in the world, or, and the reason for suffering is being attached. I think, or clinging, or grasping. I think to grasp onto these really negative thoughts, these hard beliefs about ourselves, and often the patients I see are it typically pretty, 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 pretty. And we live in a very critical society. It's always very easy to look at what's wrong rather than what's right. And I think that's, my guess is that's part of what's proliferated, the thoughts and depression, is all this clinging to these negative beliefs. And I think the difference between kind of a lower level depression and a really Depression that needs meds has to do with know, how rigid those beliefs really get stuck in the brain and how early
2: they get stuck. Well that's a good segue. Let's let's talk a little bit about what's what's right. Okay? So I I like the um, the image or the concept of resilience. I like that notion a lot. Um, and I want to just share a little story of, of uh, that I heard from Rachel Naomi Remen that I think really speaks to this notion of resilience. A lot of you know who that is. Rachel Remen is a physician who you know tells, shares her own story about how she, uh, from a very young age, she had um, really se- severe Crohn's disease, and you know, which is a gastrointestinal illness that um, can be very um, Debilitating, and she had a really severe case. And so, by the time she was a teenager, she'd already had multiple surgeries and hospitalizations, and was really pretty sick. But she she tells a story of how, when she was in her late teens, she was walking in Manhattan with two or three of her friends, and she was, you know, had already had had the, you know this this uh, kind of concept of herself as a really sick person, really ill person. And walking along Manhattan, she said she stopped in her tracks because she saw something in front of her that was just so astounding. What it was was a piece of grass or a weed or something that had grown up through the cement. Now, as she tells the story, it didn't have a crack, but it was You know, able to get into it, it came right up through the pavement or whatever the surface was that they were walking on. And she said, "What the reason it struck her so was because that piece of grass had such a strong will to live that it was just by its nature so resilient, if you will." There's a beautiful little haiku poem that I I just think speaks all about resilience. It says, Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. The thing I take from that is that um, that grass is has everything it needs. It is whole. It's healthy, if you will. It's resilient. It's um, got all the tools for full life in it, and, and there's no effort required. It just comes. I want to read to you just a little uh, a short quotation. This came from a Tibetan Buddhist whose name I believe is pronounced Genpopo, and um, the, the work was called The Jewel Ornament of Liberation. Here's a quotation. All sentient beings, including ourselves, already possess the primary cause for enlightenment. I'll read it again. All sentient beings, including ourselves, already possess the primary cause for enlightenment. Now that's, I think, another way of saying that surely joy is the condition of life, that there is within us all of the tools, all of the conditions for full, resilient, joyful life. The things that get in the way of that, you can really think of them in in three pretty simple ways. There is brain chemical imbalance or toxicity, which has to do with a lot of the things we've talked about already. It does need to be addressed in some way or another, but there are healthier ways generally to support the brain than what we're doing now. The second I would just label the problem of the thinking mind. The, the mind that runs rampant. Stan was just talking about this. The, the mind that um, is either so busy or distracted or has thoughts that it carries about ourselves or about others that it just churns around and around and around. And then the third kind of broad category is the belief that we are separate that we're isolated, that we're disconnected from one another. Supposedly that was, at least in large measure, the insight that the Buddha had sitting under that tree, was that that's not true, that we're not actually separate from one another or from larger creation. Yes, comment.
4: My age. Um, first, I want to thank you for this book. <coughs> um, I'm very proud but I do appreciate your reference to six. The difference that I'm about to go after I have Immediately got me. A taking the Zoloft since he 20. And this vitamin B6 made such a difference in how the Zoloft was reacting or how I was back in the Zoloft. just like a difficult Just The vitamin B6 As a consequence. Is. Before I got the vitamin B6, I would be taking an anti-anxiety periodically. Now I don't anymore.
2: I've got back on the Zoloft, from 75 to 25. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, you may not need to read the rest of the
4: book now. You discussed the issue of sleep. Yes. <laughs> 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 yes. Sleep Yes. that role that it may have comments about sleep? Yeah,
2: um, yeah so, so thank you for your comments about the the help you're receiving and um, a reminder of how important um, it is to attend to that uh, brain chemistry and balance, and sleep is part of that. I think um, the the statistics are pretty clear that we are sleep-deprived, and compared to 100 years ago when people averaged about nine hours of sleep or more, Nowadays, we average about six or seven hours of sleep. I do a lot of work at colleges where they average about five, probably. Um, we are so resilient that we can go a long time, some of us, um, doing these things. you know, Not sleeping much, not exercising, not eating right. We can go a long – we're actually probably a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. Because we can go sometimes for years, living under constant stress, not doing things to take care of ourselves, but it does eventually uh, catch up with us. And, it, and the reason I think that it's so powerful not or it's so important not to isolate one thing here or one thing here when it comes to depression is because it really truly all fits together. So if you don't if you don't get much physical activity, much exercise of some sort, it's harder to sleep. It's harder to sleep deeply or sleep properly. And if you don't get, you know, proper nutrition, and in your case, you know, just even one nutrient that might have been missing in your diet can unlock a great degree of healing. Um, so you know, these things all interplay. We are really truly an integrated whole, I think. It makes very little sense to me to talk about body and mind and spirit separately. We, we do because we need to, to do that for language and understanding and kind of helps to categorize things. Our brains are really good at categorizing. But in truth, they are really one, one and, and the same. They're part and parcel of the same thing. So if we have a thought, if we entertain A certain thought about ourselves. Let's say it's not a good thought; it's an unhealthy, negative thought, and we do it over and over again. It's going to affect our brain chemistry. As simple as that. I really believe that that's true. And vice versa: change your brain chemistry, you'll change your thoughts. So, where I think, I think, whereas I think most people recognize that doing. Better at taking care of our bodies would help us feel better. Um, we, we tend to be kind of at a loss when it comes to taking care of our our mind or our heart. And modern medicine is not going to give much help in that regard. So when I uh, think about resilience and I think about um, you know, how we can understand the things that we're doing and the impact that they have on us, I one metaphor that I find helpful, which I do talk about in the book, is if if you think about a water cooler, um, you know those upside down containers, big plastic jugs, and you imagine that inside your brain somewhere, you have something like that. You have a container and has a, an elixir in there that keeps you healthy and afloat. And different people have different sized containers, depending on your genetics its what you're born with. Some people have a very large, very large capacity for undergoing stress or can go a long time without sleeping very much and still somehow maintain themselves. And other people can't. They can't get off balance very much at all before they develop symptoms. But the the reason I think that that's helpful is because it, it is a very much a hopeful Image. It's the idea of you do have some control. You have some influence. Y- you don't control the size of it, but there's a lot you can do to keep it filled with what you put into your body, how you take care of your body, how you watch your mind and your thinking mind. But that is all. That image goes only so far. I think it's it's really useful when it comes to thinking about good self care, but it's limiting when we start thinking about more than the absence of disease. The absence of disease is great, but there's something more. There's something be- that goes beyond that. And that's where I think the kind of practice, the kind of community that you have here, and that you have the, at least the those of you who aren't, uh, don't belong to a group, like this. that There is the capacity in doing this kind of practice to enlarge that container, to, to actually create a greater self, if you will, so that um, we can be more resilient and thrive more in this life that we're given. Yes?
5: This is all great. Uh, we have a family. The thing that is frustrating is they don't want to get better Just keep the medicine company. And, but if, if a person doesn't want to get better, how do they how to
2: get better? It's a very difficult, uh, a difficult question. <clears throat> you know, I think uh, Something does have, have to happen internally. It, there's, you can't. You can pour as much medication as you want into somebody, and um, if there's still a great deal of resistance, it, it can only do so much. Um, you can encourage people to take good care of themselves, and if they don't do that, it's not going to. It's not going to get them you know, beyond a degree of. of unhealthiness or suffering. I think this is, this is my belief. I have no proof of this whatsoever. But I, I believe that everyone actually wants to get better. I, I think that that's true. At some level, we all want to be happier. We want to be healthier. We want to be better. If we haven't yet taken steps to do that, I, I think that the person that either is still angry, or they're not ready yet to do that, or something else needs to fall into place, but I, I've i come to trust that um, you know, even people who seem very, very angry or distressed at that moment, um, that there is something more in them. There is some Kernel of of health or uh, desire to live well and live more fully that is it's it's always there it's always intact and sometimes it seems very very hard to see it I think uh, when I am at my best I can see that even when they can't and that I think is you know as far as being a healing presence in someone's life um, I think that's about one of the best things we can do. To see more in them than they can see in themselves at that moment, and hold that really, um, you know, really steady and true. Now I'm assuming that that's a family member, and I can tell you, in my own experience, it's a lot easier for me to do that with non-family members <laughs> than it is with a family member. Sometimes I can't with my own kids. You know, there have been times I can't. I kind of lose track. I can't see that healthy spirit in them, but, I, it, but it's there. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think that I think kind of becomes a comfort in itself for people. It's kind of a familiar place. It involves you from certain responsibilities.
3: And I mean, sometimes I think it's, it's, for people who are depressed, it's the only coping skill or only kind of safe place that they know where they
1: can.
3: It feels, it's in that state, until kind of that
2: of Yeah, so the, the comment is that sometimes it can kind of become a habit or a, a place of comfort in, in a certain limited sense, and I think that that's true. I think, uh, you know, there, there are different kinds of depression. A lot of very different shapes and sizes that it takes. I try to outline that really in the in the book uh, in, in kind of simple terms, but but I think in terms that have been helpful to me. And I, and and there are some people who um, when they get down or when they get depressed, they really just kind of shut down. They, they turn off. They shut down. They withdraw. Disconnect. And that's a very hard thing to change unless there's some energy that comes in from somewhere, either from themselves or from someone else to to start to change that. And it's true. We can become um, habituated to unhealthy states just like we can to to healthy ones. It it can become the norm. So we have to be so really um, constantly vigilant in a way, constantly working at not falling into that
4: year old man, I found impression sheer hell. Yeah, Yeah. Sheer hell. I can't imagine anyone being doing it the other way than is sheer torture. Yeah, but it's... One of the depression of the, the Booty time schema. Right. As in it, it has to Yeah. boy
2: it, it create, can create a, a great deal of suffering, but it also can create different kinds of suffering for different different people. Yes.
3: five to seven days a week. I didn't drink any coffee. Um, I ate a really clean diet and I went through college. And when I started my master's degree, I was working as well as, as well as um, just having tons of stress. So then I am you know getting more out of balance and you know, started taking some Zolef at that time. But I sit here realizing that I haven't gone swimming for three and my mood is not in a good place, I feel like I need to get up and go walking or whatever. But I think the um, the interplay between, you know, the exercise and eating well, I mean all of those things um, can really balance one in a very, very wonderful way. And I it um, you know, for me personally, if I don't get enough rest and if I don't get enough swimming, I'm automatically not here well. And that. I mean,
2: yeah. So you know what? It, what I, I think that you did in those 15 years of exercising every day was you you really truly changed your your brain, and then you created a new healthier, normal state for you. So yeah, you probably would notice it if you don't do those things that got you into that state. If you don't do them for very long, you won't, you won't feel as well. Right, right
0: here first. I was in a defensive driving class recently, and the instructor is a retired police officer. And He was speaking to the effect that how we build up a lot of stress, and the only way to, to release it, or the treatment. and he was talking about what the stress did to the body, and to clean that body out required exercise. He talked about how police officers come out of a very stressful situation then they go into the gym and they just pump iron and pump iron and pump iron until they sort of cleanse their bodies out. And can you speak to that is the I mean do those stressful situations create some chemical in your body that you can that you should then need to exercise it out?
2: Yeah, so the, it's a question about um, I, I gather uh, the question is about pretty intense periods of stress. Like the, the example was a police officer who, and when police officers go through some, uh, I guess, a really difficult traumatic situation, they, at least sometimes, uh, will go work it off in, in the gym, really exercising really, really hard. What uh, I would say about that is that uh, that kind of stress, while it can seem really severe, really extreme, that's exactly the kind of stress our bodies are designed to handle. And and very often then, you know, to be released through some kind of strong physical activity, exertion of some sort. So, you know, over the millennia as we've developed, we've developed that kind of system. Really we can most of us, I mean probably everybody in here, at least if you're if you're pretty healthy, you can go through incredible periods of stress and respond really well. That's how we're designed. But we're also designed then to, to get rid of it in some way. If you look at what happens out in nature, you know, when an animal is stressed, if they're uh, under attack or something, I mean, there's an extreme physical exertion. And then it stops and they, they recover. They recover completely. The problem, that's, that, that's not the problem for us. The problem for us is that the vast majority of us don't experience those really intense periods of stress. We experience daily, nagging, um, moderate, mild to moderate amounts of stress that hardly ever go away for some of us. I mean, unless you're really, really conscious about how you design your life, many of us in this culture experience stress all the time. And it's when you do that for 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years that it really takes a toll. It's slow. We start out, we're really resilient. We can put up with a lot, some of us. But that's the kind of thing that really eats away at us. And so if you do something, like some strong physical exertion, or if you learn to shut down your body's stress system through meditation practice, for example, um, or if you do something that really softens the effects of stress, like having really strong connections in your life, really loving relationships, sense of community. Those are the kind of things that really soften the effects of that chronic stress. But for a lot of us, that chronic stress is still there, and we need to address it. If it's there, if it's affecting you day in and day out, it needs to be addressed, because it will eventually wear something down. It's not normal. It's not how we're designed to, to live life. You had a comment I, I was wondering if you could describe what are
1: the qualities of a
2: resilient mind. Mm. What are the qualities of a resilient mind? It's probably in the book somewhere. I should probably <laughs> pick up. The qualities of a resilient mind, I would um, I would characterize it as being clear and you know, so not distracted, but but clear, um, flexible, able to be directed where you would like it to be directed. Um, open, and you know when I talk about openness, I, I really think about an open heart, probably more than an open mind. But I think they're they're just variations on the same the same thing. Um, a mind that has um, an ability to witness itself, to observe itself, to see what it is that it's doing. A lot of times, um, people who start a, a Buddhist practice, a meditation practice, will will recognize pretty early on how the mind works. Recognize that it's constantly generating distracting thoughts, or judging thoughts, or kind of shutting down. Or you know, we're not able. It's very, very hard for us to stay present in the moment. And one way to look at at a Buddhist practice or meditation practice is that it is a way of um, really scientifically training ourselves to first see how the mind works and then to see what what is it in our lives that brings us happiness. What do we do that makes us feel happier, more connected, more joyful or vital? And also, what are the things that um, we need to avoid because they don't bring us that. They bring us unhappiness. It's learning by really being conscious and present and, and being able to witness exactly what happens and then how you can direct your life based upon that. I am aware of the time, and I think we need to, to bring the f- uh, formal con- conversation to a close, but I'm happy to spend some time um, afterwards, if if any of you would like, let me close with one um, one other quotation about joy. This is a by a Buddhist author, Charlotte Joko Beck, has a very simple definition of joy, which is that um, joy is whatever is happening at this moment. Minus our thoughts about it. (laughs) So thank you very much. It's been a wonderful way to spend an evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
4: dharmaseed.org slash donate.